are there angels? How do we care for our soul? What is enlightenment anyway? What happens to an enlightened person when they die? Is being gratefully dead a worthy spiritual goal? When the Buddha was asked questions like this, he refused to answer. Because, he said, it is unbeneficial. It does not belong to the fundamentals of the holy life. It doesn't lead to disenchantment. It doesn't lead to dispassion. It doesn't lead to cessation. It doesn't lead to peace. To know the answers to all these questions. Instead, he says, I teach dukkha in the end of Dukkha. After the Buddha's awakening in his realization of the truth, he taught what he knew. And as the teachings of the Buddha have migrated from India to Tibet, to China, to Korea, to Japan, to the countries of Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka. Of course, the teachings have met with the indigenous peoples and their beliefs and their religions. And there has emerged a culture-specific manifestation of the teachings of the Buddha. And so we get Zen Buddhism looking very different than Tibetan Buddhism both of which are very different in appearance from Burmese Buddhism. But if we look at the foundations of each of those traditions, we will find at their root the same teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And so for us in the West who are receiving the teachings of all Buddhist traditions and lineages and they can look very different and even contradictory and quite confusing at times, we should be careful to not just notice the differences but look carefully at what they all believe or teach or practice. And so we could say that the Four Noble Truths are the essence of the teachings of the Buddha. They are the nuggets of truth that the Buddha, with his omniscient mind, that could know anything he directed his attention to, it's what he felt was most important for beings to know in order to free themselves from suffering. Now, whether a Buddha exists in the world or not, the truth is the truth. The way things are is the way things are. But what is so special about a Buddha is a Buddha is someone who has looked deeply at the way it is within the body, within the mind, internally, externally, and has realized what needs to be realized in order to free the mind from suffering. The Buddha didn't invent the truths, didn't make them up and say, oh, this is a good, this is a good religion to start, or something like that, but rather through his own experience, articulating very carefully what he had seen or known, realized, making the truth available to those of us who have not yet looked so deeply or so carefully or in such a way as to free our own minds. So given the profusion of 
Dharma books, Buddhist books, spiritual books, self-help books that are available to us, online or off, we might ask, where do I begin? Or, what is essential, really? Do I have to learn everything? Or is there just some piece that is really essential to know? And I believe, along with many others who have looked even more deeply than I have at the teachings, that the Four Noble Truths are essential and provide a solid foundation for whatever practices you will eventually undertake to disentangle your heart from suffering and the causes of suffering. So I want to speak about these Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha, which means the truth of Dukkha. When I first started practice, Dharma practice in 75, it was at the first three-month retreat, and I heard the first Noble Truth talked about as Life is suffering. Well, I was 25 or 24 or something, and I was fit and youthful and had my whole life ahead of me, or nearly, and just wasn't encumbered by much of anything. And I went to a retreat quite accidentally, and I sat up back, leaned against the piano, and even though every sitting was excruciatingly painful, and my mind was all over the shop, and I was anxious to get the, out of there. I wasn't suffering. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't cop. I couldn't open to the fact. I couldn't acknowledge to myself, I'm suffering. Because to me, at that time, if I acknowledged I'm suffering, that meant I'm a failure. And I couldn't, I didn't get it. I, I didn't feel like a failure. I didn't, I couldn't see myself that way. Ten years later, after doing dozens of retreats, I went to Burma, and one of Upandita's translators translates dukkha as the oppressive nature of experience. That I could get. Experience is pretty oppressive at times whether it's just being hot or hungry or tired or whatever, that's oppressive. And so I began to kind of expand my understanding and kind of open to really what the Buddha was talking to, talking about as he spoke about this truth of dukkha. What I realized then, or soon afterwards, is how difficult it is, really, for us to open to the profundity or how significant these truths are. My conditioning of denial and avoidance and Pollyanna-ish, life is beautiful, just did not allow me to acknowledge how much suffering there really was in my life. I thought that it was just my stuff, my particular parents, my particular body, my particular mind, my particular insecurity, my particular... And that if I just kind of got it together a little better, then I wouldn't have any of that. But that's not what the Buddha said. He said, all beings live with dukkha. It's a universal condition. So what does dukkha mean, really, in our own experience? The first meaning of dukkha is pain, physical pain. When you get sick, you experience physical pain. That's dukkha. When you uh, stub your toe, pain. You hit your thumb with a hammer, pain. You have a toothache, pain. You 
just sit still for a long time? Pain. Not only is it the obvious physical pain, it's the obvious mental pain. When you feel lonely, when you feel angry, when you feel alienated, when you feel betrayed, when you feel jealous, envious, depressed, frustrated, ambitious, competitive. Any of these experiences, it's painful. It's emotionally, mentally painful. This kind of pain, obvious physical pain, obvious mental pain, is called dukkha-dukkha. Because it's so obvious. And every one of us in this room, and everyone that you know, experiences a lot of dukkha-dukkha. There's a second meaning to the word dukkha that is important to begin to understand. And it is not as obvious as dukkha-dukkha. But it, the under, this understanding of dukkha hinges on the understanding that all things change, as Guy spoke about last night. Even though we may now be experiencing abundance of material goods, good health, access to the Dharma, our children or parents are fine, we have a new car, we have a job, we got a little money in the bank, and we just had a good meal. And even, hey, eclipse of the moon tonight for a little entertainment. (laughs) Okay, hey, life is good. Even though conditions may be, and often are, for us, good, and we experience a lot of pleasure with them, those conditions are liable to change. They will change, guaranteed. And when they change, we really don't know what is coming next. And so just on the periphery of our attention is this insecurity. We don't know. What happened to the stock market today? What happened in the election? What's going to happen in the election next Tuesday? Or is the moon really going to come out from behind that shadow? Or we, we've seen a few years ago how in a moment the conditions of happiness in our life can be pulled out from underneath us and we're left vulnerable. We're left insecure. And we don't know what, we can't stabilize our happiness on conditions which are impermanent. It's not because you can't get it together. It's not because you feel insecure and that's just your problem. Everyone in this room has the same feeling of insecurity. We try tenaciously, to avoid it, to deny it, to minimize it, to construct conditions in our life so that we don't have to feel it. So that we kind of hide that insecurity. We buy health insurance and we stabilize our relationships and we get new cars every so often and we change the oil every 3,000 miles. We do everything we can to kind of prevent this insecurity from manifesting. Nevertheless, It's just right here, waiting. And conditions change, and our happiness is vulnerable. We could say pleasant experiences are pleasant. That's not dukkha-dukkha. But because pleasant conditions change, and the change leads to insecurity, vulnerability, we could say that's dukkha. So we could say, dukkha is hidden in pleasant experiences. Pleasant is pleasant, but change is dukkha. Again, we often miss this by personalizing it, thinking it's just my insecurity. It's not just your insecurity. Everyone feels this. For those of us who rely on unstable conditions for our happiness. That's people, 
things, knowledge, that happiness is vulnerable. So there's dukkha dukkha, there's the dukkha of insecurity because things change. There's a third meaning of dukkha, and it's called sankara dukkha. And there are two two views of sankara dukkha. There's the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view is something like this. You're born, and your parents or other caregivers, doing the best they can, take care of you. They feed you, they bathe you, they clothe you, they coo to you, they educate you, they teach you to pee and poop and wash, and they bathe you, and they do everything for you. You're just this helpless little blob there, and they take care of you for a few years. And then they hand hand you off to other teachers, siblings and teachers and authorities of one sort or another, and they continue the process. Until you get to some age where your parents or, or, or society, everyone says to you, you're on your own. Now you've got to do it. You have to take care of yourself. First of all, you have to feed yourself every day. And in order to feed yourself, you have to get food. In order to get food, you've got to have some money. In order to get some money, you've got to have a job. In order to get a job that gives you that kind of money, you've got to go to school. There's 12 or 16 years of dukkha. <laughs> Not only that, you've got to go shopping. You've got to take it home, you've got to put it in the cupboard. You've got to fold up all those bags or plastic bags, throw them away, worry about damaging the environment. <laughs> then when it comes time to eat, you've got to dig it all out, put it on the counter, dig out all your dishes, open them all up, put them all in things, heat them up, further contaminating the environment, throw everything in the trash, <laughs> cook it all up, hopefully you don't burn it, scrape it onto some plates, sit down at the table and eat and enjoy it. You know, five minutes worth of enjoying pleasant taste. <laughs> Another half hour of cleaning up all the dishes, taking out all the garbage, putting it all away, and then you've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> that's, that's dukkha too. And you've got to do this three or four, three, four times a day for as long as you live. And then, you know, you've got you to brush your teeth too. And you've got to do it. And you've got to comb your hair and you've got to bathe. And you've got to take care of this body. And if you just say, oh, to heck with it, I'm not going to do that. Just don't bathe for a month. Duka duka. <laughs> okay? And, and you say, say, I'm not going to do it. So I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to do a thing. Great. Just sit there. Duka duka. Takes about what? 15 minutes, you know. Sit still. Duka duka. You've got to take care of this body. And the body is the easy part. The mind is worse. You have to keep your mind entertained. If you don't, it'll, it'll scream. It'll make you, it'll get angry, it'll get frustrated, it'll get disappointed, it'll get restless, it'll get fidgety, it'll get tired, it'll get bored, it'll get, it'll get judgmental, it'll just bother you. <laughs> and if you don't keep the mind distracted and entertained, dukkha dukkha. <laughs> and you can't give that job to anybody else. <laughs> I don't want it. Guy doesn't want it. And Kamala's not going to take it. It's your responsibility. And you got to do it. And you got to do it for 10 years, 20 years, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 decades. 24 7. And then what? All this investment time, money, knowledge, love, everything. Nine decades into a box, into a hole in the ground. The end. And you can't avoid it. It is going to happen to everyone. It is happening to every one of us. That's a burden. That's dukkha. It's burdensome, isn't it? It's oppressive. You have to do it. We do the best we can, and we still have to do it. That's the macro view. The micro view is also oppressive. We have these five physical senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And the sixth sense in a Buddhist understanding is the mind. They're going all the time. 
you can't shut them off. You're constantly feeling sensations in the body. You're hearing sounds all day long, pleasant or unpleasant. You're seeing sights. Even when your eyes are closed, there's still movies running through your mind. And the mind is incessant, chattering away, continuously. You can't shut it up. It is so overstimulating. All of these six senses just being jammered all the time. And you can't get away from it. You have to just endure it. We do the best we can. We play good music instead of la. Well, sometimes we do play other kind of music. But, you know, it's just constant. It's oppressive. If you wanted to get away from it, what would you do? You still got your body. You're still going to feel. Your mind is still going to run. That's dukkha. Sankara dukkha. It is really hard to open to this truth. Because look at it. You open to this truth and say, This is really suffering. This is dukkha. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going somewhere else. Good luck. <laughs> it goes with you. Dukkha, 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 the dukkha of insecurity, the dukkha of oppressing, constant stimulation. Is there anyone in this room that doesn't experience dukkha? Young people experience dukkha, old people have their dukkha. Men have their dukkha, women have their dukkha. Those who live in the East, they have their dukkha. Those who live in the West have their dukkha. (laughs) Those who have kids have dukkha. Those who don't have kids, they have dukkha. People who are healthy, they have dukkha. People who are unhealthy have obvious dukkha. Everyone, everywhere, lives with this constant experience of dukkha. There's no going anywhere. There's no person anywhere. And not only person, no other being either that doesn't live with this dukkha, the truth of dukkha. So we have these three meanings, pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness, constant stimulation. Now, I grew up in the 50s in New England. My parents were of the generation where my mother said to me, Steve, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. (laughs) Now, I have a lot of compassion and a lot of gratitude for my parents. Even though my father was an alcoholic and my mother was very loving and nice, but distant. And I have great respect for them. But do you think we had any dukkha in our house? None that we spoke about. Until I went to my first retreat. And there's these Dharma teachers sitting up front saying, dukkha, 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 life is suffering, you're suffering. But it was the door, it was the opening of the door to bring dukkha out of the closet to where I could acknowledge this is the way it is. Because when we see dukkha, we can do something about it. If we deny dukkha, we perpetuate it. I am so grateful. I am so appreciative for my early Dharma teachers. Someone who could fearlessly tell me the truth of dukkha so that I could begin to do something about it. Practice is to investigate and to discover dukkha. Because our lives are so constructed that we hide from it. We run from it. We minimize it. We cover it up. We deny it. And so dukkha has to be, you have to really look for it in order to find it. But you don't have to look for dukkha. All you have to do is look at the way things are, and you'll find it. And so much of our instruction and guidance and the structure of retreats is to help you expose the dukkha that is present in your life. 
in your minds, in your bodies. It's not that practice makes dukkha happen. It's already there. It practice just exposes it so that you can see it and do something about it. Only when we see dukkha will we do anything about it. First noble truth, truth of dukkha. So now I have a question. Do you experience dukkha? Do you suffer? Do you care about your suffering? Did you ever ask yourself why, after all that you have done and gained and learned in this life, you're still not content? Why is it that we're not yet fully fulfilled, content, finished? Why is that? Well, the Bodhisattva who became the Buddha also asked that question. What is the cause of all this dukkha? Why isn't there contentment? Why isn't there the end of this dukkha? And he articulated what he realized as the answer to that question in the second noble truth when he said that the cause of dukkha is craving. Craving is experienced as wanting, clinging, yearning, attachment, being identified with. Now, it's not that we're craving dukkha. None of us are that foolish. But it's in the very craving for what we do want and identify with and yearn for that craving or that the dukkha is the seeds of dukkha are planted. Now, I didn't get it. I heard this second old truth, craving is the cause of dukkha. And I said, that is not, that's just counterintuitive. That just doesn't, that doesn't ring a bell with me. Now, I'll tell you why. I, I have this thought, this belief I had it for a long time. I'm beginning to let it go. That said something like this. And, and check it out for yourself. Do you have this thought or this belief? If I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that reasonable? Am I the only one who's so deluded that I think if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy? I think a lot of us want to believe that. But the Buddha said, no. If you get what you want, you're still going to be unhappy. If you don't get what you want, that's obvious. If you want something and you can't get it for whatever reason, it's too expensive, it's illegal, it's in some other place, and you can't get it, that's dukkha. It really makes you unhappy. It's hard to be happy when you can't have what you want. But the Buddha said, even if you get what you want, you'll still be unhappy. There'll still be dukkha. Well, explain that to me. Imagine you want something, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it, which sometimes is not much and sometimes is a lot. And you go through that effort, and you get it. There is a moment of satisfaction. It does... We feel satisfied, briefly. But if what you want and have acquired is alive, it is liable to get sick, grow old, and die. If it is made of metal, it'll rust. If it is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. (laughs) If it's valuable, you have to insure it, or the government's going to confiscate it. It'll be taxed. Whatever it is that you have acquired for your happiness is liable to change. And when it changes, your happiness goes with it. Getting what you want is no guarantee of happiness. Not getting what you want, unhappiness. Getting what you want, 
also unhappiness. What are we going to do? We're going to go to Dharma practice. We're going to go on retreat. We're going to learn Dharma practice, and we're really going to find the source of happiness. And we come here, and we get hear the instructions, follow the breath, sit still, wake up. Great. Did you want a good sitting today? Did you want a good... Everybody who comes on retreat wants to have a good sitting. You know, that sitting where you come in, and the mind is just so focused and so clear, and, and just no pain in the body, no distractions in the room. And it's like hardly any effort, and you just sit there, totally awake, clear. And you think, aha, this is it. I got it. Well, as one of our students said to us recently, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. (laughs) Because you have this good sitting, and you go out for a walk, and you just float around for a while, hover a few feet off the ground, a few inches off the ground, and you can't wait to get back to the next sitting. You come back to the next sitting, and it's like, wow, lead has been poured into your body. And it's just like hard as a rock, and just aching and screeching pain the whole time. And you think, what happened? Right? Dukkha. <laughs> Even if you get what you want, you can't stay happy. The Buddha said, we crave pleasant experience. That's for sure. We'd rather sit comfortably than in pain. We'd rather have nice food than not nice food. We'd rather hear nice sounds rather than screeching something, or rather, or most of us would, most of the time. That's obvious. But he said we also crave what he called continued existence. Well, let's not get too esoteric about that. What does that actually mean? We crave continued existence. Did you have planning mind today? Do you make plans for what you're going to do after, after the retreat ends or next weekend or something like that? What is planning? What is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining the future where you are finally happy, <laughs> you know, doing, what you, doing what you want to be doing and you know, enjoying life more maybe than right now, making plans for you know, nice experiences. We don't make plans for bad experiences. You know, we don't make plans for somebody else, and we don't make plans for about, you know, I hope I'm really miserable next weekend. We, we don't do that. We always plan our futures to be beautiful and nice and wonderful and pleasant. And we plant all these seeds in our mind of what will make us happy. And if we're not careful, we will try to fulfill all those plans. Now imagine if you had to live out all the futures you have imagined for yourself. How many futures have you imagined for yourself? Hundreds, thousands of possibilities, things you could do if you just kind of went, got it together and kind of put your mind to it. And all the time that you were putting your mind to it and getting it together and fulfilling all of those futures, of course you'd be making plans for other futures because it wouldn't be fulfilling and satisfying yet. And you'd be planting all those seeds of all those futures, and you'd have to live out all those too. And while you're doing that, you'd be planting thousands more. And pretty soon, you've, you've got such a debt of lifetimes to live out into the future that you can't possibly ever live them all. That's dukkha. That's samsara. Looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Endlessly. The Buddha said that we also crave, ah, we get really smart. We say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to bring it all to an end. I don't, want, I don't want any of it. I want it all to end. Like when you're sitting and, and your, 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 your body's just screeching with pain. You know, the knee has got an elephant standing on it and somebody put a meat hook through your back and your head has just got this tight band just squeezing it. And you're just like, ah, oh, God, I wish it would end. I wish it would end. I desire for this whole thing to just stop. (laughs) I used to have that. Don't you? You know, or at least you want the bell to ring to end the sitting. So we crave pleasant experience. We crave pleasant futures. We crave the end of unpleasantness. 
Guy mentioned last night that uh, some researchers had been studying those who uh, got what they wanted and were less happy than they anticipated. And those who got what they didn't want were less distressed than they anticipated. Well, there's another survey or another uh, research that was done also recently, similar, where they, where they, uh, they went and looked up people who'd won the lottery. You know, you win the lottery, you know, 174 gazillions, whatever, some things, you know, and you win the lottery and you think, that's it, I can buy my happiness. And what they found was really interesting. Of course, when people win the lottery, you know, they're, they're flying for a while. But they found that after a year, their base level of happiness was just where it was before they won the lottery. There was a rush and excitement and a big splurge, but it really didn't essentially change their level of happiness at all. And they also studied people who had catastrophic illnesses. And they found that for those who who lived through whatever their catastrophic event was, a year after it, their baseline happiness was the same as before the diagnosis or the event. Our happiness doesn't depend on what happens to us. It depends on something else. Not the conditions that we're living with. It depends on our mind and how we're relating to what we're experiencing. It's said that the first noble truth of dukkha is to be investigated. The second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned, to be let go of. Now, if the Buddha had realized the two noble truths, there's dukkha, dukkha dukkha, insecurity, pain, vulnerability, oppressiveness, caused by craving, good luck, we'd be in a a fix. Because what would we do with it? What would we do about it? But the Buddha was really compassionate to us. He went on to discover the third noble truth. And the third noble truth, the Buddha realized, is that there is an end to all this dukkha. There's an end. All that dukkha that I was talking about, it can come to an end. And the Buddha realized it. Not just hypothetical, it is a reality to be realized. Now, it's said that after the Buddha's awakening, he sat around under the Bodhi tree and stood there looking at it. Seven weeks, total bliss, just blissed out. Just having a great time. No more suffering. No more dukkha. And he considered what to do. You know, even though he's enlightened, he's still got to do something. Doesn't have to plan his future, but he just has to live it out. Should he teach? Or should he just wander off into the Himalayas and enjoy no more dukkha? And I can imagine, or at one time I imagined, that he would have considered, oh boy, this is a a lot of hard work. This is... Gosh, teaching all those people that? I don't know. You know, and, it, and it's pretty esoteric. It's pretty subtle. It's pretty... You know. But I think really the challenge was, is there anybody who can get it? Because the teaching on the end of dukkha is subtle. Very subtle. And sometimes and often when we hear the teachings of the, three, of the Four Noble Truths, the Third Noble Truth, it's talked about enlightenment, or nibbana, or the end of all suffering, or something like that. And it seems like it's so far away. It's out there, way, way far away. I mean, you know, at the end of the next retreat, or, you know, lifetimes from now, or something. But I want to speak about the Third Noble Truth and bring it right into this room so that we can see how our practice here today shows us the Third Noble Truth. Now, there are several ways to do that, to point to the kinds of experiences that we've all had that confirm the Third Noble Truth, in part. And the first of these is 
when we're paying attention. And, you know, we're trying to be with the breath and other predominant experience, but nevertheless, our mind wanders away and it gets entangled in some thought, some scenario, some fantasy somewhere. And, you know, we come to. And, you know, our body's all tight like this and our mind's all wrapped around some painful experience in the past or something we might imagine in the future. And we just, oh, and we, and we, we notice that there's some tension in the body. <laughs> and we go, I, I think I'll let go. Just like that. We can intentionally let go of our holding on and get immediate relief. Just like that. But if we weren't paying attention, we wouldn't have noticed that tension. And before Dharma practice, we go through years of our life, decades of our life, just building up layer after layer after layer of tension in our mind. Manifesting in our body is tightness in the body and body armor that just won't quit. And so when we come to practice, of course we start to peel off those layers and we discover all this pain in the body, some of which we can just let go, get that relief. And in that moment of relief, where's the dukkha? The dukkha. Or we find our mind gripped by some memory, something, some painful thing. And the mind is just, you know, and we, and we notice it. We say, I don't have to think about this right now. Clunk. Let it go. Again, immediate relief. I had such a dramatic experience of this when I first started practice. I went to school, I went to university, and I studied engineering. And I studied engineering in the days when we didn't have little handheld calculators. We did everything with a slide rule and longhand mathematic and longhand division. And so I did a lot of math like that. When I started Dharma practice, when my mind would wander, you know where it would wander to? Mathematical computations. And I would be, my mind would wander off, and I'd find myself multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my mind, just holding it on, just, just kind of like staring into this blackboard in the sky, just like, ah, yeah, and just, and it's like, do I have to be doing this now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. You know, it just, what a relief, just let it go. <laughs> and we all have all kinds of habits like that. Things that we've just done over and over and over in our life, and they're still going on even though we don't need to. Because it's a habit. It's conditioned, deeply conditioned. But mindfulness exposes them, and we can let it go. And we get this momentary relief, which is such a blessing. The gift of mindfulness. So sometimes we can willfully let go, intentionally let go. There's a second way that we experience the end of dukkha, temporarily in practice, and that's when we discover the hindrances. You know those obsessive, tormenting states of mind that you've been noticing for the last few days? You know, when the mind is restless, or it's desiring, or it's aversive, it's judging, it's critical, it's cynical, it's, it's just... And you can't stop. Your mindfulness is good enough to show it to you, but your wisdom isn't yet good enough to let it go. Oh, it is so painful. It is so painful. You just see this obsessive, obsessive tendencies of the mind just to yammer on about things that just cause you distress. But when you can put aside the hindrances temporarily in your practice by staying on the breath or noticing them when they arise and just putting them aside, putting them aside, and you get a momentum of mindfulness without the hindrances. The mind is so light. It is so open. And things flow through so untormentingly, it's a relief. You can't let go of your obsessive tendencies intentionally. They're deeply conditioned habits. You must train the mind to be mindful in order to overcome them. 
But even in four or five days that you've been practicing, you can get periods of time during the day, during the sitting, during the walking, when no hindrances. No obsessing in the mind. And the mind is free of those torments. We call that a dukkha-free zone. (laughs) It's temporary, it's true, but it's real. We should not minimize or discount even brief periods of such freedom from dukkha. When the mind is free of of, of the hindrances, it can do its work unhindered, which means the the mind's job is to know. That's what the mind does, to know. It knows things. It knows the moment, it knows the future, it knows the past, it knows thoughts, it knows sensations, it knows. When it's hindered, it just struggles. But when it's unhindered, it just flows. When the mind can know and do its work without any hindrance, it takes great delight. The mind loves to know in an unhindered way. And when it does, it just gets ecstatic. It gets joyful, it's interested, it's curious, it's, it's excited. It's just ecstatic to know, even painful experience, if it can know it unhindered. When the mind is filled with joy and interest and delight and ecstasy, where's the dukkha? No dukkha. The mind's excited, it's, it's interested, it's engaged, it's unhindered. There's a third way that we experience the end of dukkha in our practice, and that is with the, let's see, we'll call it the development of the balanced mind. I can't remember who, I think it was this morning someone was talking about the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment, the three energizing factors, the three tranquilizing factors, and when they're brought into balance, when they're mature and brought into balance, the mind is really smooth. All the factors of awakening are present. And there's an ongoing experience of wakefulness with whatever is being known. Physical, mental, internal, external, subtle, gross, pleasant, unpleasant. It's just smooth. The mind is not in a reactive space to anything. And when the mind is not reacting, it is Acknowledging openly, easily. Where's the dukkha in that? No struggle. No wishing it to be otherwise. No agony, no judgment, no fear, no attachment. Just being with the way things are. No dukkha. So we have intentional letting go. We have training the mind to uh, temporarily put aside the hindrances. We have the balanced mind of the, the development of the factors of awakening. There's a fourth way that we experience the end of dukkha in our practice here. We're practicing mindfulness leading to the development of insight or vipassana. And as I have mentioned before, Vipassana means seeing the inner characteristic of phenomena. Guy spoke about the first characteristic last night, impermanence. When the insight into impermanence arises strongly in the mind. Now imagine this. Follow me with this. When the knowledge of impermanence arises strongly in every moment of experience, you're experiencing physical, mental, pleasant, unpleasant, but not only are you knowing the the unique quality of that experience, but you are knowing its impermanence. You are seeing it dissolve in the moment that you know it. Moment after moment after moment, dissolving, dissolving, gone, 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 gone. The mind does not have to let go of anything because the mind doesn't reach for what it knows isn't there. 
If you see that something is impermanent, the mind doesn't reach. Instead, the mind stays settled back in the present moment, not reaching, not clinging, not grasping, not wanting, not attached to or identified with anything. Free of everything. And in that place of this non-reaching for anything, the mind can fall into the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is Nibbana. Nibbana is the end of dukkha. It is a reality to be realized by each one of us through one of these doors of insight, through impermanence. Radical insight into impermanence, dropping us into the unconditioned. Well, the second insight is dukkha, where the truth of dukkha, the insight into dukkha, is arising, along with the clear knowing of every moment's experience You're seeing the quality of dukkha in that experience. It is either painful or it is unable to provide secure happiness. It's unstable. Or it's oppressive. If you're seeing that quality in every moment's experience, what are you going to reach for as a base for your happiness? You're not going to reach for anything. Because you see, it's painful. It's insecure. It's oppressive. The mind doesn't have to let go. It doesn't even reach for anything. This insight is so powerful, it stops the mind from reaching. Allowing it to fall into the unconditioned. Impermanence, dukkha. Third characteristic is what's called the anatta characteristic. It's called the, it is noticing the impersonal or the conditioned nature of experience. Experientially, how we open to it or how we experience it subjectively is we see that everything we experience is ephemeral, it's evanescent, it is insubstantial. It is an appearance with no substance behind it. That's how we experience the anatta characteristic. It's like, it's like a rainbow. You look in the sky and you see a rainbow. It's an appearance due to conditions. The conditions of light, moisture, certain angle of viewing. You see a rainbow. Is there any such thing as a rainbow? Can you grab it? Can you send it to me in Maui? You cannot. There's no substance to it. It's an appearance without any reality. That's seeing the anatta characteristic. And when the anatta characteristic, or that knowledge, is being seen in every moment's experience, then you see everything in your life is just an appearance without substance. What are you going to reach for? How many rainbows have you reached for lately? None, I hope. Everything in your life is a rainbow. A colorful appearance due to conditions without any inherent substance. When you know that, you don't reach for it. The mind doesn't reach for that as the basis and the source of its happiness. And instead, it remains unreaching, letting go, not reaching for anything. Again, allowing the mind to fall into the unconditioned. And it is this unconditioned that the Buddha was really talking about when he talked about the third noble truth, the end of dukkha, the cessation of dukkha. Because in that accessing of the unconditioned, there is the uprooting from the mind. Not just the temporary suppression of the hindrances, but the uprooting of them from the mind so that they never arise again. 
never arise in your mind again. What would that be like? Were those qualities of mind that oppress you with their obsession, obsessiveness, if they were never to arise in your mind again? That is dukkha-free. That's the third noble truth. It's a reality to be experienced, to be realized by each one of us through our own practice. The Buddha said of the end of suffering, it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is sublime. It is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle, but it is intelligible to the wise. We use words like peace, contentment, the sublime, to point to this truth. But it is ineffable. And that means there are no words to describe it. It has no color, no shape, no texture, no qualities, no concept. But it is a reality. And through this practice, we can access it. We can realize it. And that's the fourth noble truth. The path to be developed by each one of us to realize this third noble truth, the end of dukkha. And the path is nothing other than what we've been doing here, moment by moment. Taming the the transgressive, obsessive uh, acting out of pain and dukkha by living according to the precepts. Purifying our speech and behavior so that we can uh, live in harmony. Just living in harmony is the end of a lot of dukkha. Calming the mind, putting aside the hindrances temporarily and for increasingly longer periods of time. Purifying the mind of the hindrances, giving us the happiness of seclusion or tranquility. And the third training is the training of wisdom. Purifying our understanding. Coming to know the way things really are, that they are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And it's those understandings, when we purify our mind of the wrong understanding, it's those understandings which ensures that the torments do not arise in the mind again. That is the path that we are developing here. Practicing the precepts, practicing uh, calming the mind, and practicing understanding the way things truly are. The fourth noble truth. These four noble truths are the Buddha's essential nuggets, the, the indispensable knowledge needed to free yourself from suffering and the causes of suffering. The truth of suffering, open to it. The truth of the cause of suffering being craving, abandon it. The truth of the end of suffering to be realized by each one of us. By the fourth noble truth, the path, developing the path to the end of that suffering. This is the rock bottom essential Dhamma of the Buddha that we're practicing here in each moment of our trying to be mindful. That's all you can do. Try to be mindful and you will fulfill moment by moment the path to realize the end of suffering. So let's sit for a moment. Why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because, he said, it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. 
It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. It leads to enlightenment and nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.